Good morning. Great to see you. Um, that was so fun. I could have done that for another 30 minutes. <laughs> like so awesome. Just kids running around and uh, man, Izzy and Johan just becoming best friends right before our eyes, you guys. That was amazing. Finney and Cody, you guys, you got to have dinner now together and let your boys play. That's what a gift. Um, if we've never met, my name's Jay, and I'm part of the team here, and I'm so glad you're here, you guys. Thanks for coming. And uh, I know we got folks watching online and out in the tent. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this wonderful uh, first week of the NFL football season. And uh, yeah, yes. <clears throat> Steve is extra excited because though his Cowboys lost, they looked not that bad. And uh, now, for Dallas Cowboy fans... Moral victories count as victories now. It's been so bad that moral victories count as victories. So well done, congrats. Steve wants me to continue. Okay, if you've been around for uh, just the last week or so, you know that last Sunday we started a brand new teaching series through the life of Abraham. We're gonna be in this series all the way until Thanksgiving. The reason being, if you're not familiar with Abraham's story, that's okay. He is one of the central characters in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And specifically what we're doing, you and I together, what we're gonna to try to do for the next couple of months is we're gonna deep dive into these key specific moments in Abraham's life. But what these moments are going to reveal to us is what the Bible means when it talks about living a life of love toward God. If you've been around Westgate for a while, then you know that one of our values, one of the pillars upon our, which our community is built, built is this calling, this invitation to live a life of love toward God, to love God together. But that word love and the, the idea of God both are fairly ambiguous in culture today. We, love is like whatever you want it to be. And so what we're going to try to do for the next couple of weeks is look at Abraham's life and ask the question, what does his life teach us about what it actually means to love God? So today, as we jump into a story from Abraham's life that we're going to be in for the next couple of weekends, I want to begin by showing you a picture that you're going to be familiar with. This is a picture of the moon from Time Magazine. Now, as you look at the moon, this big, beautiful ball of light in the night sky, I want to ask a question. Do you see the rabbit in the moon? Who sees the rabbit in the moon? Some of you know about the rabbit in the moon. Most of you, it seems like you don't. So just to, to make it easier for you, let me show you an outline of the rabbit in the moon. There is a rabbit on the moon, you guys. If you didn't know this, now you know there is a rabbit on the moon. Now, how many of you would like to know how this rabbit got on the moon? Anyone want to know? Okay, two of you. Two of you want to know. So just for the two of you, I'm going to tell you the rest of you. Too bad. <laughs> okay. Many, many years ago, before the sun was in the sky, the world was cold and dark, and it was always night. And these four gods gathered together, and these four gods decided, you know what we need? We need a big ball of light in the sky. And so they decided to make this happen. They needed to build a great fire. And one of them, one of the four, would need to jump into the fire, burst into a big giant ball of flame, and rise into the sky, shining light upon the earth. 
Now, fire is hot, and to be burned is not a pleasant thing. And so all four of these gods were afraid until finally one of the gods decided, I'm going to muster the courage, sacrifice myself, and do this. And this god uh, runs into the fire. He bursts into a big giant ball of flame, rises into the sky, and hence we got the sun. Now, a second god saw this first god make the great sacrifice, was so inspired, he too ran into the flame and burst into a giant ball of flame, rose into the sky, and now we had two suns. And the other remaining two gods on the ground looked at these two great balls of light in the sky, and they decided, hey, it's not right that the second sun burns as brightly as the first sun because the first sun, that's the God who had the courage to make the leap. And this second sun, who was a coward just like us, just happened to follow suit. He shouldn't burn as brightly as the first sun. And so what did these two remaining gods do? They grabbed a giant rabbit, they lassoed him up, and they, they flung him as hard as they could and hit the second sun. And when the rabbit collided into the second sun, it collided so hard, it knocked some of the light off. The rabbit uh, was attached to the second ball of light. And so we had a dimmer ball of light in the sky called the moon, which is why we have a rabbit on the moon. It's like such a ridiculous story. Some of you are like here for the first time. You're like, I thought you said this was a Christian church. <laughs> and you're like, you brought me to a weird cult thing. This guy thinks there's a rabbit on the moon. The story I just told you is this ancient Aztec myth. It's an Aztec folkloric story that tried to explain why there was a moon and a sun in the sky. Now, it sounds ridiculous to us because as modern Westerners with the advantages of science and the post-enlightenment world in which we live, we know that that's not how the sun nor the moon came to be in the sky. We know better than that. But um, what you need to know is that ancient people, up until very recently actually, in terms of like world human history, ancient people across cultures and geography had stories like this about the moon and the sun and the stars. This was very common. And the reason is because ancient people, really truly until the Enlightenment just a few hundred years ago, most of human history, for most of human history, most human people saw the world and life through this sort of mystical spiritual lens. They tried to translate the natural world in supernatural terms. That was most of the world for most of human history. And those stories like this sound outlandish to modern people like you and me. At the time, throughout most of human history, stories like this were accepted as fact. And to believe otherwise was to actually live in opposition to the cultural norms of the day. It sounds ridiculous to us, but for most of human history, this is how people explain the world. Why do I share all of this with you? 
When you and I, particularly those of us who've been going to church for a while, or maybe we went to church as kids and we sang that song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I'm one of them, so are you, so let's go marching on, right? When we hear the Abraham story, for most of us, we typically see Abraham through a modern lens. In other words, we see him as like an ancient person, but really kind of a modern person. And this is why when we read Abraham's stories, we say things like, wow, Abraham such, had such strong faith, or he had such great faith. We say things like that, right? And that's not untrue. He absolutely had strong faith and great faith. But I would suggest to you that Abraham, Abraham had way more than just strong faith or great faith. Abraham's faith was a revolutionary and dangerous loyalty and commitment to a God at a time when such loyalty and commitment was unheard of. Let me, let me show you. Let me read for you a very nondescript, what many of us would call boring part of the Abraham story. This is a part of the story in Genesis chapter 11, the tail end, when we read about Abraham's family. And it actually it reads quite boring, but I'll sort of unpack a few things and we'll see what's happening in the story. This is Genesis 11, 27 to 31. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram. That was Abraham's name before God changes it to Abraham. So same guy there. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. Super boring, right? Like on the outset, we're like, that's just a bunch of like geography I don't understand with a bunch of ancient Mesopotamian names that I can't quite pronounce. But let's do a little bit of digging because it's going to reveal to us the backdrop of Abraham and his life and culture and family. And this changes everything. First, what we discover in this story is that Abraham, here called Abram, is um, originally his family is from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, and they travel from this city called Ur up north to a city called Haran. I'll show you a map here of ancient Mesopotamia, and you can see the distance here. Now, here's the thing. This is like basically, it's like modern-day Iraq. That's what we're looking at, Okay. Now, the reason those two stars are important, the city of Ur and the city of Haran, there's a lot to say here, but what you need to know is that these two cities existed in ancient Mesopotamia. They existed in a region of the world at the time known as Sumer. Now, it's not all that important for you to remember that name. What is important for you to know is that in the land of Sumer, Worshipping the moon as a god was common practice. Not only was it common practice, it was the only acceptable practice. 
If you were a normal, acceptable person in society at the time, you worshipped lots of gods. One of the gods was the moon god. Now, the moon god, his name, ironically, was Sin. It's not connected to, like, the English translation. It's an Akkadian name. But here's the thing. When you read the story of Abram's family, here's what you discover. Again, Abram grows up in two cities. He lives for the first several um, chapters of his life in a city called Ur, and then he moves to a city called Haran. Both Ur and Haran were major centers of moon worship at the time. When you look at Abram's uh, family, his father's name is Terah. The name Terah literally translates brother or protector of the moon god. You look at Abram's wife, Sarai, whose name will later change to Sarah, but the name Sarai can be transliterated Saratu, it's an Akkadian name, and the name Saratu is actually the name of the female partner of the moon god Sin. That's Abram's wife's name. You see Abram's sister-in-law, Milcah. The name Milcah is a transliteration of the Akkadian name Malkatu, which is the name of the daughter of the moon god, Sin. Boring passage when we just read it on the surface. But do a little bit of digging, and what the passage reveals to us is Abram was not just a lonely, nomadic man wandering the deserts of ancient Mesopotamia when all of a sudden he faithfully follows God. That's not what's happening here. Abram grew up. He was born and raised into a family steeped in the cultural myths of the day. He was born and raised in a family devoted to the worship of pagan gods in their midst. Abraham was not a lonely nomad who one day happened to stumble upon the one true God. Abraham belonged to a family and he lived in a culture that did not know the one true God and instead worshipped, pledged their loyalty and commitment to moon gods. And so how does Abraham eventually become the father of our faith? How does he encounter the one true God? And through him, how does God change the trajectory of human history? It's actually really, really, really disappointing in some ways. Let me show you. The verse right after that long section about Abram's family I just showed you is Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. You know what it says? The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's how it happens. Abram doesn't do anything. He doesn't offer the right sacrifices. He doesn't, it, the story doesn't tell us that he lived this perfect, beautiful, righteous life. He didn't somehow impress the one true God. He didn't somehow um, happen to make the right life decisions. 
uh, to, to coax the one true God toward him. None of that is in the story. Literally, the story says, here's a man named Abram. Him and his entire family worshiped a false god, the moon god Sin, and then the one true God came to Abram. He was like, hey, man, leave your family, leave your land, leave your people, and go to another place, a place I'm going to show you. That's how it happens. Abram doesn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't achieve or impress his way to it. God simply goes to Abram and says, hey, leave. That's how it happens. This is really jarring because this is not the way we think about our encounters with God. In, a, in the modern Western mind, we don't think about the great things in life happening this way. We mostly think about self-sufficiency. I love that Mark led us through that psalm and we declared together, God is all-sufficient. And that should feel weird to you because the American ethic is to, not to say anyone else is sufficient, it's to say, I am sufficient. I can earn and achieve and impress my way to whatever life I think I deserve. That's not what happens here. God just shows up to Abram one day and he says, hey, leave all of that behind. Abram doesn't do a single thing. He doesn't earn it or deserve it. He's not impressive. He doesn't achieve anything. He's just a guy and God shows up. God initiates with Abram. And because you and I don't live in the ancient world, we miss the power of this moment. Because in the ancient world, the gods never initiated. God calls to Abram. In the ancient world, the gods never called to people. In the ancient world, people initiated. In the ancient world, people called out to the gods. And the gods sat back and waited to see if your calling out, if your initiative was impressive enough, if it was good enough, if it looked and sounded the part. That's how it worked in the ancient world. In fact, let me show you a picture. This is a picture of a place called the Great Ziggurat of Ur. And Ur should sound familiar because that's where Abram and his family are from, yes? This is, a, um, this is actually sort of a two-scale remodeled rendering of what the ziggurat of Ur would have actually looked like at the time, thousands of years ago. They believe that this ziggurat, and I'll explain what a ziggurat is here in a moment, they believe that this ziggurat existed when Abraham was living in the land. Now, ziggurats in the ancient world, it's hard to see because there isn't like a person there for scale, but this is a giant structure. And you can see in the center, there's a staircase. You see that staircase? That staircase leads to the top of the ziggurat. And at the top of ziggurats, these were really common structures in the ancient world. At the top of ziggurats were small temples. 
and there would be these pagan priests and musicians and they would offer sacrifices to the gods and the entire concept of a ziggurat was that people would create sort of an elevated temple to coax and invite the gods to descend and be amongst them. This is why they would climb the top of the staircase as, they, as if they were initiating and calling out to the gods above. And at the top of these ziggurats, they would worship these pagan gods, including the moon god, Sin. And they would offer animal sacrifices, and they would sing these songs, and they would essentially beg the gods. They would initiate and call out for the gods to come down and to bring their blessings. This is how it worked in the ancient world. This is how it worked at the time of Abram. When Abraham was walking the land, these ziggurats were everywhere. In the ancient world, gods didn't initiate. Gods didn't come down of their own volition. In the ancient world, people initiated. People called out to the gods. Now, you and I, again, as modern Westerners, we think that this is like so barbaric and archaic. But the truth is, you and I still pursue, chase, initiate, and call out to the gods all the time. Our gods don't look like moon gods called sin with rabbits in them, but they look like a wide variety of other things. Success, money, achievement, social status, a wide variety of things that we worship. Now, you may not think it's worship, that, but that which has the majority of your attention and your affection, your time, your energy, your thought life, make no mistake, that is a God you worship. If you are on the, on the sort of treadmill chasing after whatever the thing is that you are chasing after, make no mistake, that is not just a work of habit in your life. That is a work of worship in your life. We still chase the gods. We're still building ziggurats today. When I was in eighth grade, <clears throat> my friend Brian and I, we got paired up to work on a science project because there was gonna be a science fair. And so we made this like replica of a rocket ship and we worked really hard on it. And then there was a science fair and uh, we, everybody, all the different students, all the different teams had like little booths, you know, where you presented your project. And there was actually gonna be like a first, second and third place. And so the science fair was like probably like on a Wednesday night or something. It was in the evening after school. And so we set up our project and we're waiting there and there's like dozens and dozens of students and like dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of like moms and dads who would come to like support their kids and then all the faculty and all the teachers there to like, you know, grade the projects and then like hand out awards, hand out prizes. And uh, Brian and I, this is, a, this is a life achievement sort of moment for me. Brian and I won the blue ribbon, which is first place, right? Everything else was downhill from there. This was like 1993. That was the peak of my academic career. I won first place in eighth grade at the science fair. First place, you guys, Brian and I, we won first place. We got the blue ribbon. And I distinctly remember somebody from the school was there to take a picture of us. 
And as Brian and I are standing next to our science project, Brian has his mom, his dad, and his brothers, his two brothers. He was the middle child. So in the picture, there is Brian with his two brothers, his mom, and his dad. And then on the other side of our project was me, just me. Because my mother, some of you know my story, single mom trying to make a life for us. She was working like two, three jobs at a time. She couldn't make it to science fairs. And my dad, you, some of you know this, I had no relationship with my dad. He wasn't even in the country when I won first place in the eighth grade science fair. And I distinctly remember what should have been a moment of such pride was a moment of such utter embarrassment and anger for me. Because here's all my friends and a bunch of teachers and faculty and all the other students kind of celebrating the fact that Brian and I had won first place. And on his side, it looked the way those sorts of pictures are supposed to look with mom, dad, three kids and a dog or something, right? (laughs) And then there was me. And I I distinctly remember, though I should have been proud of our hard work, the fact that we'd been recognized, the fact that we won first place, all I wanted to do was run and hide. I was so embarrassed and I was so angry that I had to stand there alone with no one supporting me, there to celebrate with me. That was, um, I think that was like 1992, I guess it would have been. So almost 30 years. And I will admit to you that for 30 years since that moment, I still remember that moment. Think about that. Three decades ago, I still remember that moment. For almost 30 years, I've been tempted to build ziggurats. To earn the favor of the gods. So that I might feel normal. So that I too can sort of forge the sort of life that looks more like the American dream and less like the brokenness of my actual childhood. In fact, I would would admit to you this, even as a pastor, some of you who are Christians, you look at me or Steve or some of our other leaders and you think, man, they're doing like God's work, holy work. At my worst moments, you guys, even this holy endeavor, this incredible gift of being able to preach the gospel, even this work, if I am not careful, can become a ziggurat I build to earn your approval. Because because though my dad never told me I'm good enough, at my worst, most fleshly broken moments, do you know what I do? I take those moments you tell me that a sermon was good and I replace in this dark part of my heart an emptiness that your encouragement to me was never designed to replace. This is idolatry. We build ziggurats all day, you and I do. We are still trying to earn the approval and, and, and um, uh, the favor of the gods. The gods just look different today. Make no mistake, do not believe you're so modern and so wise that you don't do these sorts of things. We do it all the time. Building towers into the heavens to coax the gods to give us favor and blessing. In the Abraham story, you know what it tells us? 
the one true God of the universe doesn't need ziggurats. He doesn't need you to build a tower to reach the heavens. He doesn't need you to coax him or to call out to him or to invite him to love you. He does that work long before you could ever ask. He has loved you far longer than you could ever know. You and I build ziggurats today because we forget. We forget that we don't need to chase after God. He's chasing after us. Ezekiel 34, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. We build ziggurats today because we forget that we don't need to build towers to reach God. He is closer than we can imagine. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. We build ziggurats today because we forget that we don't need to achieve status to impress God because God leans into our weakness. Mark 2, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 2 Corinthians 12, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. We build ziggurats today because we forget that we don't need to pursue God. God pursues us. Our dear friend Josh Butler puts it this way. Our problem is not that we're reaching out for God and he's refusing to be found. It's the opposite. God's reaching out for us and we're scattering in other directions. Our responsibility is not to chase God or pursue God or impress God or achieve our way to God. Our responsibility is to be loyal and committed to obey and follow the God who has come so far and so hard after us. Look at what Abram does. Abram, uh, Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. We're going to get deeper into this next Sunday. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what does Abram do? Abram went. You know what's really fascinating about the Abraham story? God's pursuit of Abraham. Again, God, uh, Abraham does nothing. He doesn't achieve anything. He doesn't even ask God. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't pursue God. He doesn't chase God. He doesn't impress God. He does nothing. God comes to Abram. You know the one thing Abram does? The one thing he does. 
he went. God told him to go, and he went. You do not need to impress God or achieve your way to God or earn his favor. You don't need to build towers. You don't need to win first place or blue ribbons. You don't need the perfect family and the the two kids and the dog and the house and the car and the job and the 401k. You don't need like all of that stuff that culture tells you you need to be the sort of person that is worthwhile. You don't need any of that. All you need is to open your heart and mind to the reality that God has already come a greater distance than you could ever know to come after you. And all you need to do is go when he tells you to go. Yesterday, we celebration is the wrong word, the sobering day 20 years when everything changed. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And you think about that day. You think, like most of you who were alive at the time, you know exactly where you were, exactly what was happening when you found out everything had changed. And we think about and we mourn and our hearts break and we're inspired by like first responders. It's not just the people who died in those towers. That's so incredibly tragic at the hands of such grave evil. But we also think about the many who died running into the fire instead of away from it. And then what's really sad is we read the news and we realize the end of a two decades long war is happening now. As American troops finally pull out of Afghanistan and our hearts are torn and they're broken and it's a complex issue and we're really confused because there is such great evil still in the world today. And then there are people on the ground in Afghanistan, not just Americans, but people from all over the place and specifically actual Afghanis who are trying to get out of a country that poses them imminent threat and danger. It's really complex and we th- we're mindful on a day like this of all of the pain, all of the injustice, all of the complexity of our broken life. But a week or so ago, two weeks ago actually, I saw a photo that was going viral. You may, you may have seen this. This is the photo. This is the photo of a young Afghan girl landing in Belgium. And she is chasing, she is skipping. And you can't really see it from where you're sitting, but she is smiling ear to ear. And that's her mother and her father and her younger sister in front of her. I want you to think about this. This girl didn't know where she was going. She probably didn't know or understand why she was going. She simply knew and trusted who she was going with. She didn't have to earn or prove or impress or achieve her way to that sort of safety. She knew wherever mom and dad led her was the best place for her. In the midst of the chaos and pain and suffering and complexities of the world, in the midst of the chaos and pain and complexities of your life, maybe you don't know where you are going. Chances are good that you probably don't quite understand why you're headed in the direction you're headed in. 
But if God is the one calling you to go, you can know and trust him. You don't have to earn or prove or achieve or impress your way to safety in the arms of a God who gave his son so that you might have life. He has already given you that which you need most. And you can know, as this little girl knows about her mom and dad, you can know that wherever God leads is the best place for you. So stay loyal, stay committed, and follow. When God says go, may your story say you went. Because that's the best place to be. Even if you don't know where that place is might be. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for coming after us. We thank you for chasing us down. We're in awe of the fact that the king of kings would know people like us that the king of kings would know a person like me, that you would be mindful of my little life, so much so that you would send your son Jesus to give his life so that I might have life. And so free us by your spirit today from the temptation of idolatry to earn or to achieve or to impress our way to a particular life and instead help us to take hold of the life that has already, already been gifted to us through your son. And when you say go, help us to follow. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>